When we read Acts chapter 10, we often make Cornelius the focus of the chapter. But a careful reading of the text suggests that Peter is really the dynamic character with the most movement. Could it be that Peter was also given a gift of the Holy Spirit the day that the Gentiles spoke in tongues? Welcome to episode 54, The Gentile Pentecost. This is Greg Hall, and you've made it back to one more episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Thanks for choosing this podcast just one more time. I'm really excited about today. We're going to dive into Acts chapters 10 and 11, and there is so much to cover in these two chapters. We're going to mention just a little bit that has spurred on some theological debate And then we're going to move on to speaking in tongues. That's how we're going to finish. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) So these two chapters, chapters 10 and 11, have a lot of content. And some of that content has really spurred on some theological debates. So first, there's Peter's vision of a sheet holding clean and unclean animals, and then God telling him to eat. And at first, man, Peter is confused. But through the course of events, he finally figures out that God is just giving him an extremely extended metaphor, a metaphor that goes all the way back to the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. Now, that's an extended metaphor, and there's a lot to study and read about regarding that part of the story. There's also one part of this text that you may not actually know about that some people suspect isn't a part of the original text or in some way it may have been altered. So let me just try and unpack this a little bit. So when I'm leading tours of the Holy Land, one of the places we always go is Caesarea by the Sea, where this episode happened, where Cornelius lived. But we also often will go down to Joppa, where the story actually begins, where Peter is up on the roof and he has the vision of the sheet and the clean and unclean animals. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this part of the story, but I'll just mention something here. In the text, there's a question, and it's because the last part of this verse discusses the men that Cornelius had sent to Peter. It reads like this. It says, The men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And there are some theologians that think that there's no way this passage could be authentic. Simply because it says that the men ask for directions. And I've got to believe that even in a different culture, there's really not much of a likelihood that that's ever going to happen. (laughs) Well, I'll let you figure that one out on your own. We're going to move on to a little more content. Because then, after that, there's the whole order of events when Cornelius and his family receive the Holy Spirit. This is another whole topic that theologians are talking about. And it's because a lot of people are talking about whether you need to be baptized in water before you receive the Holy Spirit. And along with that discussion, they're talking about what point does faith come into the picture, and specifically, what part of what we read in the New Testament should be normative for today. So let's just say this. The stories in the book of Acts don't fit nicely into one formula, mostly because we assume these people are coming to an initial faith in God when they believe in Jesus. We assume that because that's what happens most often today. We just naturally read the text like they are subject to the same circumstances that we are. But that's not true. 
The circumstances back then were much more complicated. Just for instance, when we look objectively at the description of Cornelius in this chapter, it's most natural to conclude that he is already a believer. He's a believer even before Peter arrives at his house. I'll just read a little bit of the text here. Acts 10 verse 2 says that he, Cornelius, is a devout man who feared God with all his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Not only that, but in the very next two verses, verses 3 and 4, he's praying about the ninth hour, it says, which is 3 p.m. our time. And Luke has already let us know back in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, that the ninth hour is the Jewish hour of prayer at the temple. And while praying, an angel from God visited Cornelius and confirmed that his prayers and alms were received by God. Skipping down to verse 7, Cornelius had a devout soldier working as a personal attendant. So that's the second time that word devout has come in. First in verse 2, talking about Cornelius himself. He was a devout man. And now in verse 7, we find out he has a devout soldier working as a personal attendant. There are only two other times this devout word is used in the entirety of the New Testament. Luke uses it again in Acts 22.12 to describe a certain Ananias as a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. That's almost the same description given to Cornelius. In Acts 10.22, when Cornelius is described to Peter, he is described as a righteous and God-fearing man well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. And the only other time this devout word is used in the entirety of the New Testament, it's in 2 Peter 2.9, where it is clearly identifying a believer in God in contrast to the unrighteous unbelievers. So we've got that description of Cornelius. He's a devout man. He's well-received. God sends an angel to him. God says his prayers are being received in heaven. And a few years ago, I actually got into an online debate with somebody that was wanting to say that he was just a God-fearer and not a believer. So a God-fearer is generally described as a Gentile that fears God but hasn't fully converted to Judaism. And in a weird way, a lot of people have defined God-fearers as not believers just because they haven't taken that extra step to actually become fully devout Jews. But as I was discussing back and forth with this guy online, I just kept going back to what the text said about him. And let's remember that Luke is the author of this story. It's happening to Cornelius and Peter, but Luke is the one that's writing this account. And when is he writing it? It's not like he's writing it as the story progresses. It's not like he's there on the scene like a reporter and has a deadline for the next day. Luke is writing this account well after the fact. And as we've pointed out in previous episodes, Luke is a careful author, and he uses the opportunities in his narrative to introduce his characters very carefully. So if these people are not believers, uh, Cornelius and the people in his household, if they're not believers, or let's just say it this way, if Luke didn't want us to think of them as believers, he could have easily done that. But that's not what he's telling us. He is telling us that Cornelius is already a believer in God before Peter ever shows up. So 
whatever is happening in this account, in these two chapters, as it's happening and then it's recounted up in Jerusalem by Peter, it's not the conversion of an unbeliever that's happening here. And specifically, let's go even deeper than that. The way Peter talks to Cornelius suggests that he's not only a believer in God, but it's written in a way that suggests that Cornelius already knows about Jesus. Just listen to the way he's described. According to Peter, Cornelius was well aware of John the Baptist's ministry and how Jesus had been anointed with the Holy Spirit and given power to heal people throughout the land. So if anything, in Peter's little sermonette that he gives Cornelius before the Holy Spirit comes, he's really only giving an update on maybe the most recent events that happened in Jerusalem, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And if that's really the way we're supposed to read it, like he was familiar with John the Baptist's ministry and maybe was there or heard about when Jesus received the Holy Spirit there at his baptism and the miracles that he did, then Cornelius and his family are really more closely linked to the disciples of John the Baptist that show up later in Acts chapter 19 with the last episode of Speaking in Tongues. And for that matter, he's also very similar to the devout Jews that are in the crowd on the day of Pentecost. When Peter gets up, gives his sermon, there would have been many in that crowd that had met Jesus along the way, heard about his baptism, seen some miracles, and maybe were just being updated with the most recent events of his death, burial, and resurrection. I believe what Luke is doing throughout his gospel account, especially as the gifts of the Holy Spirit are handed out to these different people groups, I think what Luke is pointing out is that these people are already acquainted with the ministry of Jesus. They already know who he is. Likely, they've already come to faith in him. And so what the gifts of the Spirit are accomplishing within the book of Acts are really a coming together of the different people groups. That is the purpose that the gifts of the Holy Spirit serve in the book of Acts. It is clear by the context of the story that the Lord already considers Cornelius and his family as faithfully clean. This isn't a blanket statement about all Gentiles. The sheet coming down out of heaven with clean and unclean animals, that is a picture of Jew and Gentile to be sure. But then as Peter is sent to this particular man's house, the message is that God has already accepted him. He is already clean. And something else is going on in this account because Luke is showing us something else in the story. If this is a conversion story, like many people assume that it is, I would suggest to you that it's really Peter who is being converted because he's the one that travels the biggest distance, both literally on the road and also theologically speaking. He is the dynamic character that changes. Cornelius is already in the family. It's Peter that didn't think he could be. Peter himself says it here in uh, verse 34. It says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Well, in this context, who is that man? Who is the man that fears him and does what is right? It's Cornelius. Cornelius is already welcomed by God before Peter arrives. Peter is the one that has to play catch up for what God is doing out in the world. 
And when we think about the message that Peter was sent to Cornelius to preach, we often think that he's there to give him the gospel so that Cornelius can be converted. But that's not the message that he gives. The rest of the message that we find in verses 36 through 43, Cornelius already knows that information. In other words, Peter's message that he's giving to Cornelius is just filler until the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening. And then Peter concludes in verse 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized. That statement is a comment between Peter and his Jewish companions. So the big question in this scene is how do we get the Jews to accept those who God has already accepted? What needs to happen to get the Jews unstuck from their worldview? Cornelius was already a brother in the faith. This conversion story is about Peter. And as I've said before, I think we're missing the boat if we try to define the events in Acts as normative for our day. The events in Acts are, by the nature of the story, not normative. They are extraordinary, and we should recognize them as such. So, in the remainder of today's episode, we will be focusing in on the speaking in tongues by the Gentiles in Caesarea. And I'll be building on some of the content that I've shared in previous episodes where we've discussed the phenomena of speaking in tongues. So, if you haven't listened to the three episodes that I did on the Rethinking Babel project, those are episodes 38, 39, and 40. Or the two episodes we spent in Acts 2, that was episodes 44 and 46, or even the last episode, number 53, where we talked about Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, you'll want to give those a listen for further context. In the remainder of today's episode, I'm going to assume that you've already listened to at least some of those, and so I won't be rehashing a lot of that content. So to be sure, Acts chapter 10 has just a boatload of content that could take us in many different directions. But here, we're going to be focusing in a little more on the character of Cornelius and ask what happened when he and those with him spoke in tongues. And in that process, we will be asking the question that almost no one is asking. And here it is. As readers, should we assume this speaking in tongues is the same thing as the tongues we read about in Acts chapter 2? And if so, does that even work with the current way most people understand Acts chapter 2? As we look into these questions, we will dive into not only the events as they are told in Acts 10, but also in the retelling of the events to the apostles and the brethren in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. So let's just dive into the text and specifically see what the text says. We'll start here in Acts 10, 44 through 47. These are pretty key verses regarding the speaking in tongues. It says, while Peter was speaking these words, those are the words that uh, the little sermonette that he was giving. So while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. So, breaking away from the text, there's that. 
But when Peter travels to Jerusalem in the next chapter, and now it's time for him to get all of his Jewish friends unstuck from their theology, here's what he says in Acts chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. He says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That from chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. And the main question I want to ask is, what does Luke mean when he says that Peter and his companions were amazed, quote, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. So before I unpack what I'm thinking about that text in particular, I thought we could visit some commentaries and some different articles where people discuss uh, here Acts 10, 44 through 47 specifically. And let me just start with a few comments out of the Acts of the Apostles commentary by Ben Witherington. He thinks too much has been read into verse 47b. That's where the text says they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Okay, that just as we, he thinks too much has been read into that. He says this, Peter does not say that Cornelius and company spoke in the same manner as at Pentecost. He simply says that they received the same spirit as had happened to the audience at Pentecost, which was made clear by some sort of audible phenomena, some kind of speech prompted by the spirit. Witherington goes on to say, there's no mention of foreigners or foreign languages here or of Peter and those accompanying him speaking in a language the hearers did not recognize. This suggests that we should not try to press Acts 10 into the same mold as Acts 2, even if there is certain appropriateness about calling this the story of the Gentile Pentecost. He says Luke is in all likelihood simply suggesting that inspired speech of a particular kind, in this case, ecstatic speech, which is a form of praising and magnifying God, is involved. The spirit received was the same, but the inspired speech differed somewhat in Acts 2 and in Acts 10. So, Those comments from Witherington, you can see there that those that look into the circumstances of how we've defined Acts chapter 2 and then what happens in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and Peter, it's pretty clear that the deeper you go into looking at the text, that if what people think is happening in Acts chapter 2 today is actually happening, the same thing can't be happening in Acts chapter 10 because all the pieces don't fit together. And so Witherington here is an example of somebody saying that, you know, Luke, he's calling it the exact same thing that is mentioned in Acts chapter 2. But he says just because he calls it the same thing, that doesn't necessarily mean it was the same thing. In fact, it can't be the same thing, because those two pieces of the puzzle don't fit together. Moving on, out of the handbook on the Acts of the Apostles, this is Newman and Nida that I've quoted several times in previous episodes. They say this about the passage in chapter 10. 
They say, whereas at Pentecost, the Spirit seems to have given the believers the ability to speak in other languages, and they reference chapter 2, verse 4, the experience here seems rather to be an ecstatic experience in which they did not speak other intelligible languages, but rather strange tongues. And then they reference chapter 19, which again is the last time that Luke mentions speaking in tongues near the end of the book of Acts. But Newman and Nida conclude by saying this, however, there are some commentators and translators that do understand this speaking as referring to foreign languages. In other words, there are people out there that try and take what they think is happening in Acts 2 and make it fit into Acts chapter 10. In other words, that Cornelius is speaking known languages that he has never studied before. The only problem is, how would Peter have known that what Cornelius was doing was the same thing as what happened to them on the day of Pentecost? The only way Peter would have known that or been able to know that is if Cornelius is speaking the native tongue of Peter, which would have been Aramaic. And it is ridiculous to think that Cornelius wasn't familiar with that language. He was hanging out with the Jews. He was in the synagogues giving alms. He was well acquainted with the whole Jewish nation. Cornelius would have been familiar with the native tongue of Peter. And that's where Acts chapter 10 really runs into problems and the puzzles don't fit together because of the way Acts 2 is often defined. Now, if you've listened to previous episodes, you know I've got a different take on this, but I'm just trying to give you a representation of what the commentaries are saying out there. Another work titled Tongues in the New Testament by Smith from 1973 uh, has these comments about it. He says this, Admittedly, Peter's words in 1047 and 1115 could be taken to mean that the occasions were identical, but his words do not demand this conclusion. He suggests that there's an assumption that Acts 2 is one thing, it's the speaking of known languages, and that all of the other mentions of speaking in tongues, so maybe Acts chapter 8, if that's what's going on there, here in Acts 10, Acts 19, and then everything in 1 Corinthians, all of those are talking about something else. But for that assumption of the text to be true, there has to be two things going on. That Christians in the New Testament clearly practiced this non-language vocalization. And it would also require that the word tongue, by the time Luke wrote his account, had achieved such a fixed meaning in that sense of a non-language vocalization that Luke didn't feel the need to describe it further in any way because the meaning had become so fixed. And Smith says that the first requirement leans way too heavily on a certain view of 1 Corinthians, while the second is just a very risky possibility. So that from Smith, again, just with the conversation back and forth between what in the world is going on when Luke, the author, describes speaking in tongues. Is Acts chapter 2 just a one-off and none of the other episodes are like it? Or are we, based on the way Luke describes it, supposed to understand that all the other episodes are exactly the same as what's happening in Acts chapter 2? And if so, do we even understand really what's going on in Acts chapter 2? Because the pieces don't seem to fit very nicely. Now I'm going back a ways to 1964 article uh, looking at this idea of the topic of speaking in tongues in the New Testament. It's out of the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, and the article is written by MacDonald. He says this, 
the crucial factor in this episode was the tongues which made Peter and his six colleagues know with certainty that the Gentiles had received identically the same experience that he and the others had at the Pentecost feast. Peter calls it the same gift in 11.17, and he states three times, 10.47, 11.15, and 11.17, that these men had received the Holy Spirit just as he and his companions had. McDonald goes on to say, by asserting that the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning, he has reference to Pentecost and its promised power rather than the quiet experience of John 20, 22, which I haven't really talked about very much at all, but it's worthy of mention here. Because in John 20, 22, the Holy Spirit was breathed onto the apostles. McDonald finishes with these thoughts. Though the fiery tongues and the heavenly hurricane-like wind were missing, the net result was, as Peter said, the same gift. And this throws the weight of evidence in Peter's analysis on a Pentecostal experience. These were principal ingredients of the first Pentecost. And he says that it took more than Peter's recounting of his vision to the circumcision party in Jerusalem to convince his critics. What really convinced them was the fact that the Gentiles had received the same gift. And that silenced all the critics. So what exactly does Peter mean by this statement, just as he did upon us? Is he only talking about the reception of the Holy Spirit, or is he talking about the gift of speaking in tongues there? Was there a noise like a violent rushing wind? Were there tongues of fire distributing themselves and resting on each of the Gentiles? We know at a minimum it included the speaking in tongues, because Peter mentions that part of it. And the interesting thing is that the text says that they, and that's referring to Peter and the brethren from Joppa, this is Acts 10.23, that they were hearing them speaking with tongues and they understood what was being said as statements that were exalting God. But you might remember in Acts chapter 2, it was the apostles that spoke in tongues and the crowd heard them in their own native languages. And it says there that they heard them in their own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. So for some reason, Luke chose to use similar language in these two episodes, and he fails to distinguish it as a different phenomenon. So for instance, he could have said they spoke in tongues, but it was different than back in Acts 2. But he doesn't do that. Luke goes out of his way to let us know what Peter said. It was the same manifestation. And I believe Luke is inviting us to think the speaking in tongues in Acts 2 and in Acts 10 were the same thing. The same thing is happening in both stories. Now, there may be some dispute as to exactly what the same thing is, but I think we can come out of the text with the understanding of whatever it was that was going on in Acts 10, it was the same thing that was happening back in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius, his relatives, and his close friends. We see that in Acts 10, 24, 27, 33, and 44. And they all spoke with tongues. The whole crowd did. It wasn't just one guy. It was the whole crowd that was there in Cornelius's house. So it's a big role reversal. 
Peter and the six brethren from Joppa are not the ones speaking. They're the ones hearing, and he heard them exalting God. And as we saw with the sampling of commentators I just read from, if we go with the majority view of what's happening in Acts chapter 2, this scenario in Acts 10 just doesn't work. Everyone thinks the tongues in Acts 2 are the native languages of those in the audience. And that seems to work there because of the diversity of the audience. But in Acts 10, there are only circumcised Jews in the audience, Peter and his travel companions. And the speakers are Greek-speaking Gentiles. So, if Acts 10 and Acts 2 are the same phenomenon, and if that's the way we're supposed to understand it, what language did the Gentiles speak? It would have had to have been a language that no one in the group of Gentiles had studied and learned. And yet, it had to be a language that all of the Jews would have known. So the Hebrew dialect would most likely be the only language that fits that scenario. But it seems, based on the description of the Gentiles there that day, that they would have at least been familiar with Hebrew and Aramaic. These Gentiles are certainly familiar with Jesus and his ministry leading up to the cross. It gives one ample reason to believe that they would have been familiar with the Jewish native tongue. So, if the speaking in tongues is speaking an unlearned, known language, then what language did Cornelius speak that day? There are just no good options. In previous episodes, I've proposed that the tongue speaking in Acts 2 was a language of men and of angels, that the gift of tongues is the supernatural ability to use the alpha language, the the one humanity shared until the Tower of Babel. And then the confirmation that it is actually God at work is not the speaking, but the spirit-given ability to interpret the alpha language by hearing it and understanding it as one understands their own native language language. That's the only option that checks all the boxes for Acts 2, and it's the solution to the problem here in Acts 10 with Cornelius. When Cornelius spoke with tongues that day, Peter recognized it as being just like the voices of the apostles and himself at Pentecost, but he also understood that they were exalting God with their tongues. So, Peter was given the supernatural Holy Spirit-given ability to understand it in his native tongue. That's what he means when he says they received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Only this time, he's in the audience, and he's experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the gift of interpretation. The two gifts always work in tandem. That's how we know when someone is speaking in tongues that it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. That same spirit also gives another the ability to understand what is being said. There's no guessing about the gift when it comes to Scripture. And when Peter showed up that day at Cornelius' house, church was in session. I mean, Peter didn't think so because he was still questioning whether a Gentile could be a believer in God. But Cornelius was already saved. So when Peter walked into the house, a church service started. And all the rules outlined in 1 Corinthians applied. It was orderly. The Gentiles spoke. The Jews were given the ability to understand what they were saying. And that's what converted Peter that day. It was that shared experience of watching the Holy Spirit work through both parties that confirmed it. 
No other scenario really makes sense. If Cornelius was just speaking words that Peter didn't understand, Peter wouldn't have been convinced. He would have been skeptical, just like we are today when no one is there to interpret someone claiming to be speaking in tongues. But that's not Peter's response. This is the gift that brought the church together. It was the spirit working with both the speakers and the listeners. And remember, that makes sense because Acts 10 is really about Peter's conversion. Well, I've run out of intelligible things to say about Acts chapters 10 and 11. So I think we're done for this episode. But before we go, I just want to encourage you because I know we've been spending a lot of time in the episodes with this topic of speaking in tongues. And you might be thinking to yourself, man, it is so time to move on. Well, the problem is it's here in scripture. And when I'm teaching through a book like this and I come across it, and then I go into the commentaries and the commentaries are not asking the questions that the scripture seems to be answering, even though it may seem like it's not directly applicable to you in your daily life, this is an opportunity to learn how to read scripture, how to study it, how to ask questions that nobody else is asking and not giving up until you get to an answer that makes sense. And anybody can do that. You don't need any amount of schooling. You just read the text. You ask the questions, what seems to make sense and what doesn't make sense. In the next episode, we'll move on in our study of the book of Acts. We'll take a closer look at the events of Acts chapter 12. It's Peter's arrest and his deliverance. And there are some things hidden in the text that you may never have noticed before that are going to be worthy of your time and attention. I guarantee it. Thanks again for listening. And oh, by the way, if you haven't had the time to rate, review, or even recommend to your friends this podcast, I would sure appreciate it if you found a way to work the Rethinking Scripture podcast into an everyday conversation. Mm